So last week, I introduced Jesus to you from John's perspective, and it was way cool. I told you how Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they look at Jesus from the messianic human perspective. John looks at Jesus from his divine perspective. And so we spent a lot of time talking about the divinity or the deity of Jesus last week. And in a couple of weeks, we'll do that again. Um, but I found something very interesting in John chapter 2 through 5. There's like this subtle theme that I'd never seen before. In fact, nobody's ever even mentioned it to me before. But when I see the same concept being used four chapters in a row, even when it's subtle, it kind of gets my attention. What's the Holy Spirit trying to communicate here? And if you'll excuse me, I think I left a water bottle down there. Is that one mine? Because I certainly don't want cooties if it's somebody else's. <laughs> okay, thanks. That'd be kind of gross, wouldn't it? So here, here's what happens in my family in the summer months, which is, you know, like February to December. <laughs> Like Tucson's a great place to live three weeks out of the year. <laughs> we go out into the garage. Before we get into the garden, we all grab our bottle of water. You know, if it's going to be a, a short, quick trip, it's one small bottle. If it's going to be a longer trip, it's maybe a big bottle or two bottles. And, you know, if we're going to have a restaurant in between, you got to think it out because, you, you know, it's 100-something degrees out there and your car's hot. You want to have water. God forbid your car should break down. If you don't have water on you, man, it's rough. Water's cool. But we don't appreciate it in this culture as much as in other cultures. And by the way, the theme in those chapters is water. What I mean by that is, at my house, we've got like two and a half bathrooms, and each bathroom has at least three places you can get water. I mean, there's a sink, there's the shower or tub, and there's the toilet. Not like you want to drink out of the toilet, but the dogs like it. <laughs> I mean, we got water, you turn a knob at your house and it just throws water into your yard. We live in a desert and we can have swimming pools and fountains and water our grass. I mean, it, we just, we don't appreciate water like people in other places. Imagine having to walk a mile with a bucket or two buckets to get water from a malaria-infested, dung-ridden crocodile hole. And then you have to hope no venomous snakes between here and there, and tigers aren't too hungry to fetch your five gallons, ten gallons of water, which you have to carry a mile. And you know how heavy that stuff is. That's how a lot of the world lives. Not pleasant. And I was just so pleased when I learned that the Cubbies, one of our smallest kids groups, has been bringing in change every week, all year, and they got enough money to buy a water filter for a family. That means this family now is going to have fresh drinking water for the rest of their lives because of what the Cubbies at Book of Life did this year, which, well done. But you know, I'm kind of a, a survival nut. I'm not a prepper, but I like watching preppers on TV. And I'm pretending that if the world were to fall apart, I'd last more than a day or two. My wife took this thing on, I don't know, is it Facebook or whether, how long you would survive the zombie apocalypse and you answer a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it for like three months. I said, wow, I'll probably make it like three days. I don't really think I'd survive the zombie apocalypse. But I took the test just to see. And I was like, I did pretty good. 
It said, you will survive the zombie apocalypse, not because of your skills, because of the lack of your humanity. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> Zombies beware. <laughs> so I, I like survival stuff. So I was real interested in that water filter, because I've, you know, I've read about water filters before, and they last for a few gallons or a couple hundred gallons, and you got to toss them and buy a new one. But this one comes with a syringe, and you can backflow it with pure water, which blasts out all the gunk, and then you can use it again. And I don't think, I mean, it's like millions of gallons. I mean, this will last them for the rest of their lives. You can take muddy, snotty, nasty, gooky water, pour it into your bucket, it comes out of the filter that clean. It's amazing. Water's awesome. The Bible starts off talking about water. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. And as we read a little further, God came out of the water, God said, let the dry land appear. And before that, God separated the waters from the waters, and the waters below and the waters above, and the expanse in between is called space or sky. So it seems like there's even water out in space. Water is a big thing. The ancient Greeks, they knew at least there was one philosopher who said, everything comes from water. It's like, ah, he read the Bible, didn't he? <laughs> water is a cool thing. So when I saw that in John 2, 3, 4, 5, water, 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 it just it jumped out at me. It made me a little thirsty, too. <laughs> so here's where it first happens. It says Jesus and his family and his disciples were invited to a wedding. So they go to the wedding, and Jesus' mom comes up to him. This is at the very beginning of the whole story. And says, they ran out of wine. And Jesus' response was, let me paraphrase, yeah, so? <laughs> How's that my problem? <laughs> nice Jewish guilt trip. Mom didn't say anything else. And I could almost see Jesus just grinning, saying, okay, mom, I'll take care of it. Go get me the purification water jugs. And so they got like six pots, and each pot had like 20 or 30 gallons of water in it because the Jewish people in some locations had these jugs of water for, that, for purification purposes. In fact, archaeologists have dug some of these jugs up, not the ones Jesus used, but just, you know, we understand that whoever wrote this story knew exactly about the culture of the day, which is helpful for the people who doubt the integrity of Scripture who think this was written years later by people who weren't there? Who else had 20, 30-gallon jugs of water for purification other than the Jewish people in this century? So they went and they get the, these jugs. They, they're filled with water. And Jesus said, okay, now bring some of the water to the head of the feast. And somehow, by the time he sipped it, it had turned into wine. And the guy says, whoa, this is the best wine. Usually you serve the best first. This is amazing. He didn't know where it came from. Only the servants who got the pots and mom knew where it came from. And, of course, the disciples, they were in on it. And they were like, because remember, this, Jesus is new on the scene here. This is like first big miracle. And they're like, whoa, wow. But this raises a topic of conversation, unfortunately, we're going to have to have. How is it that Jesus can make 100 gallons of wine and some Christians think that drinking alcohol is sinful? What a lot of people do is they're raised with a certain belief system about this or other things, 
And then they read the Bible through the prejudice of the belief system that they already have. And so then the idea is, well, Jesus obviously turned water into wine. It must not have been real wine. It must have been grape juice. But the problem with that is the word is wine. Nobody translates it grape juice. In fact, later in the Bible where it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, it's the same Greek word for wine. It's the same kind of wine in the Cana miracle that we're not supposed to get drunk on. Other people said, yeah, but they, they, they used to water down their wine in those days. It wasn't like wine today. Said, well, that's not true. Sometimes they watered down their wine. Sometimes they didn't. But then, okay, so now we're just quibbling. Wine's okay as long as it's watered down. How watered down does it have to be to be okay? But people don't go that far. They just say, no, drinking alcohol is wrong. Now, some people think drinking alcohol is wrong because they've seen lives ruined by alcohol. I understand that. And people have to be careful with what they do. And I would definitely not say you must drink alcohol. But because some lives get ruined by it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. You know how many people die of coronary heart disease? Therefore, with the same deduction, the same logic, eating must be wrong. No, it's the abuse of food that leads to the diabetes in some people, the coronary heart disease in some people. It's not food, it's the abuse of food. Alcohol doesn't ruin lives. The abuse of alcohol ruins lives. And the Bible is very clear in many passages. Don't be drunk. Don't drink too much. Wine will make you an idiot. There's a whole section in the Proverbs about that. So it's, we can't look at the scripture through the lens of our prejudice. We have to look at it through what it says. Jesus turned water into wine. Listen to what Deuteronomy says about alcohol. If the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe, then you shall exchange it for money. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So, in John chapter 2, I told you water is featured and it's miraculously turned into wine. In John chapter 3, water is again featured. What happens here is one of the main religious leaders in the whole nation of Israel comes to Jesus by night. So the implication is he doesn't want anybody to know. Maybe he had a busy day. Maybe that's why he came at night. Let me read to you. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Then the rabbi, the other one, asks, how can a man be born when he's old? And Nicodemus said, surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And then Jesus says, unless a person is born of water, there's your word, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now that, I told you last week, John is philosophical. His scriptures aren't as straightforward as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sometimes it's hard to understand what he's getting at. Unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean, be born of water? I think most of us, at least who have some familiarity with the Bible, would understand being born of the spirit. Spiritual birth, okay, but born of water? People aren't sure to this day exactly what Jesus meant. I think the most obvious is he's talking about two types of birth. There's the physical birth, 
which gives you entrance to life on this planet. And there's the spiritual birth, which gives you entrance to the kingdom of heaven. The physical birth comes through water, breaking of the water, the womb. The spiritual birth comes through the Holy Spirit. But water is used symbolically of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, too. So there might be like a play on concepts here that it's going on. Not exactly sure. I just wanted to point out that Jesus specifically said, unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So how do we get the spiritual birth? He explains it. We're in John chapter 3. Listen up. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, we've got to be born of water and the Spirit to have eternal life. How do we do that? John 3.16, believe in Jesus. So whatever that water-spirit thing means, how to apply it is easy to understand. That part we know, believe in Jesus. You want to be born of the Spirit? You want to be born again? Believe in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Spiritual birth comes from believing in Jesus. Now, how many of you watched a football game and saw somebody with John 3.16 on their cheekbones or holding up a placard in the stands, John 3.16? John 3.16 is one of the most popular verses in the entire Bible. That's why, because it tells you how to have this spiritual birth. But John 3.18, two verses later, is just as important. And you never see that on anybody's cheekbones. Nobody holds up John 3.18. You know, you should start doing that just to freak people out. (laughs) Just to get them to think, hmm, I wonder what that is. They'll go look it up because everybody knows John 3.16. Let's mix it up a little. Listen to John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten of God. So John 3.16 is like the good news. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Yes, it's good news. It's great news. But John 3.18 adds a little urgency to the matter. It lets you know that the decision you make here is extremely vital. You have the option to say yes. And if you do, you get eternal life. But you also have the option to say no, and if you do, you'll have eternal damnation. We are not benefiting people unless we give them the whole story. Let's say I had this cool little pill. I said, here, take this pill. It'll make you feel better. You might want to take it. But if I said, here, take this pill, because if you don't, you'll die. But if you take it, you'll feel better. Now you might be a little inspired to take the pill. John 3.18 is like that. Take the pill or you'll die. John 3.16 just says, take the pill, you'll feel better. Need both pieces of the story. All right, so in chapter 1, 2, and 3 of John, the message of the good news of Jesus is focused to the Jewish community. That's the context in which all this was done and written. But there's a change of venue in chapter 4. Jesus is traveling through Israel, and he's got to pass through Samaritan territory. All right, let me draw you a picture. Back around the days of Alexander the Great, there was this heretical priest in Israel that kind of, well, he married a Samaritan woman. 
And her father was an influential leader. The Jewish community said, you know you're not allowed to marry outside of the faith. You can't be high priest anymore. But he really loved his wife. Plus, he liked the political clout the marriage made. So her father said, don't worry about it. We'll build another temple on Mount Gerizim, and you can be the high priest of that temple. And you can be the priest of the Samaritans. He was like, yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. So this heretical Jewish high priest marries a Samaritan woman, and they start another temple on Mount Gerizim. 150 years, 200 years pass. We get to the time of the Maccabees, roughly 150 B.C. And the Maccabees say, you know what? Enough of that heretical temple. And they destroy it. That's it. End of the Samaritan temple. But it's not the end of the Samaritans. By the way, I told you that was around Alexander the Great. But where did the Samaritans come from in the first place? We got to go back a couple hundred years before that. Kingdom of Israel was invaded by the Assyrians. And they took the northern tribes captive. And they took some of the people from the Assyrian Empire and sent them to live in Israel. That's what you did when you conquered a territory. You took out some people, you put in some people. You wanted all the people to mix so that your control would be more secure. So all these people came into Israel, bringing their foreign gods and their foreign belief system, but they became influenced by the local religion too, the, the Judaism, as it were, of that day. And so they kind of became heretical Jews. Over time, they pretty much stepped away from their paganism and just followed the first five books of Moses. But their reputation of being heretical and the reputation of being outside the Jewish community and enemies of the Jews stuck with them. So much so that the rabbi said, if you even drink from something a Samaritan drank out of, you're defiled, you're unclean. I mean, talk about imposing your own cultural beliefs on the Bible. Where, where's that verse? It, it's not in there. But they wanted Jews to have nothing to do with Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't want to have anything to do with Jews. And so some religious Jews wouldn't even walk through their towns. They'd go around them so as not to defile themselves. <laughs> Jesus wants to get from point A to point B. He's not prejudiced. God loves everybody, Jews and non-Jews. So Jesus goes right to Samaria, sits down at Jacob's well, which is cool. He's been there before. Read the Old Testament. So he sits down at Jacob's well. There's a Samaritan woman there. It's obviously not crowded. She's like the only one there. And he says, ma'am, please give me a drink. He's obviously a Jew. You can tell a Jew on sight by the way they dressed and maybe by his accent. And she says, how is it that you being a Jew are asking a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She knows Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. And he will be defiled, according to culture. He drinks out of what she gives him. She's perplexed. What's your game, dude? Why are you here? And Jesus said to her, Jesus, you got to love this guy. You know, he never answers the question directly. Why are you asking for me a drink? Here's his answer. If you knew who was asking you for a drink, you'd ask me for a drink. And I would give you a drink and you'd never be thirsty again. She says, you know, that's a deep well and you don't even have anything to get the water out with. How are you going to give me a drink and what kind of water would make me never thirsty again? I don't understand. I'm summarizing the story. He says, go back home, get your husband, bring him back, and I'll explain. 
She says, um, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you told me the truth, sort of, because you've had five, and the man you're living with now isn't really your husband, and that you said the truth. She's like, ah, oh, you must be a prophet. She said, you know, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. I got a theological question for you. And his answer was, you must worship God in spirit and truth. She goes back to town and says, oh, by the way, when, with the, the, the theological question, she says, we know that when the Messiah comes, he'll answer all these questions. And Jesus said to her, the one you're speaking to is he. He just said he's the Messiah. Now, you read through Matthew, you read through Mark, you read through Jew, uh, Luke. Talking to Jewish people, he never said that to them. He left them guessing. Till the very end, at his crucifixion, then he fessed up. But he talked to a non-Jew, supposedly this defiled, impure woman, Samaritan. He just tells her right out, I'm the Messiah. Now she goes back to the village, tells her, I've met the Messiah, I think. Definitely a prophet. He knew all about my life, though we've never met before. He's a Jew, but he took water from me. And they're all like, really? We got to meet this guy. And so she brings back a crowd with her, and he starts talking to them. And many become believers. And they ask him to stay, and he stays. And they ask him to stay another night, and he stays again. Not only does he drink water with this woman, he stays in Samaria for two full days to teach these people and gets tons of followers. All because of what happened at the well. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Water, eternal life. Hey, that was John 3. Water, spirit. Hmm. Same theme. Different people, different place. Very interesting. Okay, we're going to jump forward, for those of you clicking for me, to John chapter 5, the pool of Bethesda. Again, water. We're at a pool. Here's what's going on at this pool. Jesus happens by. There's nothing about Jesus' life that was happens by. Jesus chooses to go there. Everybody else thinks it's a coincidence. There's a guy laying down there. He's uh, crippled. Why are you here? He said, well, you know, you know the story about the water. Angel comes, the water bubbles, the first one in gets healed. He said, so why aren't you healed? I says, well, I'm crippled. As soon as the water bubbles, I want to get down there, but somebody who can walk gets in there before me. I can just imagine Jesus going, dude, that's not the way to get healed. I'll heal you. Take up your mat, go home. Guy gets up, and he goes home. He's carrying his mat. Scripture tells us it's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that in Israel on the Sabbath. It's against the law. You can't work on the Sabbath. So these rabbis say, hey, 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 you! What you doing? What do you mean, what am I doing? I'm going home. You're carrying a mat. I haven't walked in 38 years. Celebrate with me. Get off the mat already. The guy who healed me told me to carry the mat. Well, who healed you? I don't know. Some young rabbi over there. What's his name? I don't know. I've never met the guy before. Sometimes later... He runs into him and learns it's Jesus. And they say, oh, it was Jesus. Jesus did it. So they go to talk to Jesus. What are you doing telling this guy to break the Sabbath? And Jesus tells them that they don't know what they're talking about. They 
need their attitudes adjusted. They got a serious problem. Now they're mad at Jesus and they want to kill him because he broke the Sabbath. Yes, from their perspective, but more so for what he was saying. Remember I told you Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus in on his humanity. John's stories focus in on his deity. They tried all the harder to kill him. I'm reading from John 5. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Moreover, this is Jesus' words now. Here's some of what he told them. The father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Wow. You know, it amazes me. There are different groups that call themselves Christian. They have different perspective on who Jesus is. Um, Mormonism teaches that Jesus is a man, just like you and I, who through their religion ended up becoming a God, and you can do the same. So I don't know, do I call him a man, do I call him a God? That's who he is in their belief system, just a man like you and I. The Jehovah's Witnesses think he's a special man, a prophet, but he's really Michael the Archangel in human flesh. There's other groups that don't think Jesus is divine at all. He's just a prophet. And we'll be talking more about his divinity as the weeks progress. How can somebody hear a statement like that and not think Jesus was claiming to be divine? I know I'm transgressing here, but uh, sorry. <laughs> but I want to draw because I have ADD and it's been a long time since I've done anything. <laughs> oh, I already drew yesterday and I forgot to take off the paper. I have here the word Lord. I have here the word liar, which I didn't know how to spell. And the word lunatic. You know, because there's the liar that you play. Yeah. So Lord, liar, lunatic. And phonics just doesn't work for me. I'm not intelligent enough to be able to spell well, but I'm too intelligent for phonics. Phonics. Right? And when you want to make a call, you dial on the phone. And I only know the E should be there because I know the word bone sounds like phone. But if I were to spell it, I would just spell it bone. So I'm a very bad speller. We'll use blue. All right. Jesus said he was the son of God, making himself equal to God, they understood, that all men should honor the son even as they honor the father. If he's not the Lord in human flesh, that's blasphemy. How can you put anything equal with God? You can't. Nothing's even on the scale with God, let alone equal to God. So the fact that Jesus was saying he was equal to God, that all should honor me just as much as they honor the Father, he was claiming to be God. We saw it last week. We'll see it in coming weeks. He was claiming to be the Lord. 
Now, as you saw just a moment ago, but I wanted to write it, he was the Lord or he was not. That's logic. It had to be one or the other. He either was or he wasn't. If he was not and he called himself Lord, that meant one of two things. He was a <laughs> liar. <laughs> <laughs> or, as you saw, a lunatic. Anybody who calls themselves equal to God is crazy, right? I was in the um, mental health ward not too long ago. Sometimes I visit people there. And uh, it's funny, the people I visit, they share my sense of humor more often than not. And I was there with my wife, and one of the people we were there with said, she's been hit on three times. And my wife said, who hit on you? Was it Moses, Jesus, <laughs> or President Franklin? <laughs> and we all had a nice laugh. Lunatic. No, no, not even close to reality. Anybody who claims to be God needs to be in a place where he's watched. Was that Jesus? I mean, I, I'm not talking to Christians now. I'm just using logic. Jesus claimed to be God. If he wasn't, he's a nutter. And he should have been locked up and on meds. Or he didn't think he was God. He was just claiming to be God. Which is exactly what you want to do in a Jewish community. Go out and tell somebody you're God and watch and see how long you live. That put him back here again. So if he was a liar, he was still a lunatic. Why would you lie about something like that? Who's going to believe you? Hey, I'm God. Come worship me. You know? I'm just using logic. He was either a liar or a lunatic, or he was God. Those are our only options. And so we get all of this for some roundabout way through water. He went to that pool for a very specific reason. And he healed the guy and didn't tell the guy who he was for a very specific reason. He told him to pick up his mat and take it home for a very specific reason. He argued with the Pharisees for a very specific reason and used the words he used for a very specific reason. For you and I, I just want to close with this. When the Samaritans were in Jesus' presence, it said many listened to his words and believed. When he was speaking to the Jewish crowds, it said the same. Many listened to his words and believed. But many did not. He said, if you honor me as the Father, that's good. If you don't, it's not good. And many believed in him, and many didn't. And that's exactly where we are this morning. Many believe, and many don't. I don't know each and every one of you close enough in here this morning to know where you are with Jesus, but I'm very thankful you're here. I'm glad you allowed me the opportunity to teach some of the Bible to you, introduce you to Jesus maybe in a new way. But we're now his representatives. He wanted us to carry his message forward to you so you could make the same decision these people had to make. You have to decide in your mind and in your heart which one the, he is. And if he's this one, then you have to decide whether you're going to follow him 
or not. And that's the hardest and most important decision you'll ever make. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I liked that song we sang before I got up to teach, We Believe. But I know everybody doesn't believe. And so I pray you would do something in their hearts and in their minds to help them believe. And not just believe, but to take the step of committing to follow you that within their innermost being might also flow rivers of living water. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.